this lectern is not balanced, and I moved it so uh, Brooke wouldn't hit her back of her head when she was hitting the tambourine, but the rocking lectern makes me feel like I'm going to fall over. So three passages from uh, scripture this morning, first from the book of the prophet Daniel, then from the revelation to John, and then lastly, um, the experience of Jesus and Pilate from the gospel of John. On this, which is the last Sunday of the liturgical year, the cycle which carries us each year from the weeks before the nativity, Advent, preparing for Christmas, and then through the seasons, and then closing just before the beginning of Advent with the last Sunday of the year, uh, traditionally called uh, the reign of Christ or um, Christ the King. But I'd like uh, to suggest a different way of thinking about that reign of Christ uh, today. Each of the uh, passages that we're going to look at um, has to do with this idea of uh, sovereignty. And what does it mean? And how is sovereignty exercised? And uh, to what end is sovereignty exercised? We're familiar with this concept because in America, the people are sovereign, right? We don't answer to a king. Uh, we answer to our, each other. We're accountable to each other. This idea, of course, uh, dates uh, from the earliest days of the Puritan experiment in New England um, when people living in towns like Fairfield in the 17th century understood themselves to be accountable to each other and would meet together uh, to make decisions together. And the lineal uh, descendant of that is the representative town meeting today and the congregational meeting of our churches um, where the people are sovereign. But there's another sovereignty at work in our lives uh, to which the church must always be attentive. So first, from the, God, from the uh, book of the prophet Daniel, Daniel is a, a, an apocalyptic piece of literature. So is Revelation. In fact, uh, the book of Revelation to John was traditionally called the apocalypse. Now, when you hear the term apocalypse, you think you're going to go to the cinema and you're going to see one of these massive... Um, portrayals of violence and fiery heavens and all kinds of beasts battling and conflagration and primordial conflict between the forces of good and evil, light and darkness. And and that perception of apocalypse uh, comes from the, the vivid imagery in the book of Revelation. Um, in which things like that happen. But apocalypse means revealing the revelation, the showing forth, the drawing back of the curtain so you can see behind, maybe it's Oz, <laughs> right? The drawing back of the curtain to see what's really there, to reveal that which has previously been unknown, not perceived, not understood. And so the apocalypse um, is so important for the book of the prophet Daniel because Daniel lived uh, during the time of the captivity in Babylon. The Jews were captive in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. And the stories that you're most familiar with, of course, are Daniel in the lion's den because he won't submit to Nebuchadnezzar and he's thrown into the lion's den. 
Nebuchadnezzar assumes he'll be eaten, and he comes out unscathed. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who will not bend and worship the idol elected by Nebuchadnezzar and thrown into the fiery furnace, they'll be burned. And they say, it's cool in the furnace. And they emerge unscathed. From this book, we have the image of the quote-unquote son of man or the son of humanity, the child of humanity. Jesus refers to himself repeatedly, more than any other term, to refer to himself as the son of man. This enigmatic phrase, what does it mean? It means a human being. And in this passage from Daniel, the ancient of days, God, who's portrayed as an old man with a white robe and white hair, that's why we think that that's what God looks like, because that's the vision that Daniel had. And the Son of Man comes on a cloud from heaven. This was such an important book. This apocalyptic literature was so important, particularly to the Jews of Jesus' day, because they lived under the heavy heel of the Roman Empire. The knee of the Romans was on the neck of the Galileans and the Judeans, taxed and oppressed, almost to the, literally to the point of extinction. And so the promise of the apocalypse is that the Son of Man would descend on a cloud, would defeat the enemy, the opponents of God, and liberate the people and raise God's people back up and restore them. So it's incredibly important. So the people who knew Jesus, when they heard him say the Son of Man, they thought of Daniel in this promise of a revelation, an apocalypse, where the purposes of God would be shown forth. So from chapter 7, as I watched, the thrones were set in place, and the Ancient One, don't you love that hymn, Ancient of Days? It's one of my favorite hymns. Okay. Ancient of Days, da-dum-ba-bum-bum-bum-bum. Bum. Very Victorian, very beautiful. The Ancient of Days took his throne. His clothing was as white as snow, and his hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire, and a stream of fire issued and flowed out from his presence, and thousands upon thousands served him, ten thousands times ten thousands stood attending in the seat of the court of judgment, and the books were opened. And then I saw one like a child of humanity, a son of man coming with clouds from heaven. And he came to the Ancient One and was presented before the Ancient One. And to this Son of Man was given, this child of humanity was given dominion, glory, kingship, that all the people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. And his kingship, kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. So this is a vision that Daniel has of great hope. It's reflected fully um, in the book of the Revelation to John, the Apocalypse of John, the showing forth, the revealing. The, the Revelation of John is written um, not by the evangelist, but a later, later person, John, um, who's imprisoned by the Romans on the island of Patmos. It's a prison colony. 
and he's imprisoned because he's a Christian. And his fate is almost certainly execution. And he writes to seven churches in Asia Minor who are also suffering heavy persecution. Uh, Asia Minor is what you and I would call Turkey, Eastern Turkey. One of the uh, recipients of the letter is Ephesus. Many of you have visited Ephesus. So he writes this circular letter that goes to seven churches. And it begins, grace to you and peace from the one who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth to the one who loves us and has freed us from the weight of our sins and made us to be a kingdom, priests serving the God and Father. To this one be glory and dominion forever and ever. Even in his imprisonment, in, in his, his imprisonment and the threat that is over these churches, a hymn of praise. Look, John writes, he is coming with the clouds, Daniel, the Ancient of Days, coming with clouds, every eye will see him, even those who have pierced him, and on his account all the tribes of the earth will wail, so it is to be, amen. And the one who sat upon the throne said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the beginning and the end, who is and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Fortitude. Tenacity. Belief in a future that's not our own. Trusting that God has not forgotten us, even in the depths of our concerns and in the grief of our days and in the suffering of humanity, as bad as it looks, the story is not over. Never put a period where God has put a comma. Do not relent and give in to the depths of despair that try and test us and tempt us but remain strong in looking to the future that God has prepared. And so from the Gospel of John, in the 18th chapter, Jesus had already been arrested, sent to Caiaphas and the high priests and the rulers in the Sanhedrin, and then they have sent him on to Pilate. In the time of Jesus, the temple establishment, uh, overseen by the priests and the high priests, is one very small locus of authority. Its authority is very limited to religious matters only. The Romans, who have now taken over Palestine by the time of Jesus as, an, as a province to be directly ruled from Rome by a governor, often called a procurator, consul, in this case, Pilate. Pilate is a true authority. Nothing can happen in Rome 
without the assent, the agreement, the order of Pilate. The Romans are the ones who hold all the cards. And so here we find Pilate entered the headquarters, the praetorium, and again he summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he paused there for just a minute. Now remember, Israel had had a king, Herod, the Herod the Great, the Herod of the birth story, who ruled as a vassal king, but nominally, Judea was its own political entity. Herod only ruled at the uh, sufferance of Rome, but he was a king of the Jews. So people are familiar with their being kings, but now there are no kings of the Jews. There's only Caesar and his governor, Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? Back to the text. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. Now let me pause there momentarily. This is a deeply troubling um, phrase because of the way it will spin itself out in human history. Now, this idea that Jews are responsible for the death, the crucifixion of Jesus, is one of the great tropes which yielded innumerable deaths and incalculable suffering by the Jews at the hands of Christians for millennia. When he says don't about the Jews to be handed over to the Jews, let me suggest here, as an alternative understanding, that Jesus doesn't want to be turned over to the Jewish authorities, not to the Jews, to the Jewish authorities, because if they have their way with him, whatever resolves, whatever comes out of that, is a Jewish matter. It's an intra-religious dispute, which yields a religious result, and doesn't mean anything a hoot to the Romans or to the rest of the world. But if he's handed over to the Romans because he is claiming to be the king of the Jews, treason, sedition, then it's a worldwide response, the system of evil which dominates the world. Jesus is no fool. This is the genius of Jesus. It's important who kills him. Because in the death of Jesus is the revelation of the nature of the evil of the system of domination which prevailed not just in the first century but has prevailed throughout human history and in a very real way has come to its apotheosis here in the 21st century. As it is, Jesus said, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate said, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. Well, for this I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. 
Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And then, let me add a note here, I think cynically, Pilate answers, what is truth? I have come to testify to the truth, to reveal the way things really are, to open your eyes, to pull back the curtain, to expose for the truth, for the understanding, for the perception, and thereby the motivation of all of humanity, the evil nature of the systems of domination which prevail in the world. It's very easy for us to fall into the trap of thinking that Jesus comes to teach us to be nice to everybody. Nothing wrong with that. To welcome those who are unwelcome and to love those who are unloved. Nothing wrong with that. That's a big part of who we are, of course. To serve those who are suffering and to stretch ourselves for those who are forgotten. Nothing wrong with that. But we limit our understanding of what Jesus is trying to do if we think that's the sum and substance of it. He doesn't want to teach us how to be good under the system of domination, but to leave the system of domination which produces the suffering and the ills of the world, to leave the system of domination in place. He comes to expose the system of, dominate, of, of domination, to articulate a different social vision that we are one people, that we are mutually responsible to each other, that we bear one another's burdens, that we give ourselves for each other, that we do not look to get the upper hand, but to be the hand that reaches out to lift everybody up together. This is the trouble with monarchy. I mean, we live in America. We can't love kings. I mean, that's the whole idea, isn't it? I mean, that's why they burned down the building that was here in 1779. They burned down our building in 1779 because Andrew Elliott stood in the pulpit of that church and said, the king has got to go. Right? They didn't kill Jesus because he was a nice guy. They killed him because he called into question the domination of human beings. That some are here, and that presses down and oppresses those further and further down who become subservient to and exist in order to serve the elite, the monarch, the lords, the 1%, whatever it is, call it what you will. Okay. This is sum and substance of our history, our identity, who we are. So how do you do this? Jesus said, well, you know, if I, if, I was, if I wanted to be a king here, yeah, I'd get my disciples, we'd get a bunch of swords, we'd storm the uh, Praetorian, and we'd have it with you, and then you would kill us. Because no rag, ragtag band of rebels from Galilee are going to defeat the largest army on the face of the planet. There's no winning. And plus, if you do, so what? All you've done is created more violence, more mayhem, more suffering, more domination. The system that really dominates us is violence. All the systems that hold people down are based in violence. 
either the exercise of violence or the threat of violence. That's how the people are made subservient, compliant, and quiet. And Jesus says the only way to upend that is to step aside. He steps aside from the bully who is Pilate. He's Caesar's bully there to enforce the system. And if Jesus takes a swing at him, it's going to be dropped like a sack of potatoes. The only way to reveal the evil of what's going on is to sidestep the bully and like in judo, let the force, the energy go past you. This is what King did in the mid-20th century. With passive, nonviolent resistance to evil, he exposed the evil for what it is. That's the only way America came, at least partially, to its senses about the system of domination, which is still firmly in place. So what that teaches us is that this is, this is not a been there, done that kind of thing. It's a process. It's an evolving growth in understanding, engagement with a different way of thinking. To see the world in the way Jesus sees it. To understand the dream of humanity, the dream for humanity that God articulated in the stories of Genesis and the creation of the Garden of Eden, the homeostasis, the equality, the, the, the goodness, the wholeness, the, the, the gestalt of us all living together, not one over the other, but all for each other. So I think that's a great way to end the year. to get ready in Advent to see the world in a different way. Not to give in to the prevailing systems of dominance, to think that our current way of ordering our social life is good. Because let me tell you, for most people, it ain't. We are 4% of the world's population. And the way we live is fully, completely complicit with the system of domination that produces the suffering that ravages this world. It's time for us to wake up, to sidestep the bully, and step into the path set for us by Jesus. Amen.